And good morning to everyone in here and good morning to everyone on the five second delay across the way in the hall. Well, we stand here this morning, somewhere approaching 2,000 years, the other side of what would have to be uh, the most significant moment uh, in all of human existence. The moment when God in human form, uh, Jesus, that second person of the, the Trinity, came down to earth and then breathed his last breath on the cross. The skies were dark um, and then that great temple curtain was torn in two. It was a moment of reconciliation. It was actually the moment of reconciliation that made possible for multitudes of us, people from all sorts of cultures, all nations, all walks of life to be reconciled with God. Xavier, could you put the first slide up, please? That's, that's the last one. <laughs> Thanks. I want you to imagine uh, with me for a moment an alternative sort of reality. I want you to imagine that instead of disciples, Jesus had advisors when he came to earth. And because he was Jesus, he had the best advisors that you could possibly have. The best managers, the best strategists, the best analysts, the best speech writers, the best speakers, the best event planners, and of course, the best marketing team that you could possibly have. And before them, they have this end goal in sight, to reconcile God to humanity. Can you imagine the schedule that that sort of team would have put together for Jesus' time of ministry on earth? Can you imagine the scene that might have ensued in the boardroom had God actually put his plan before this team of so-called experts. The awkward conversation might have gone something a little like this. Of course they'd put the marketing guy forward first because it's the marketing guy's job to try and convince people. And I think he would say, look, you probably aren't going to want to hear this, but this whole idea of being born in a stable, it's it's not really gelling with me. It's just, it's not screaming power and authority. And we want, an, we want you to make an entrance with power and authority. So we're probably gonna have to lose that Mary and Joseph family and try and trade them up for another family who perhaps have better networks or a little bit more influential. We've had the management team look over your schedule and their feeling is that just far too much time is being spent on nobodies. All of this time spent fishing and wandering around the mountainside with just 12 people, well, it's wasted time as far as he's concerned. There are much better things you could be doing with your time. 
Likewise, all of these one-on-one -on -one appearances with blind people and sick people and even dead people, we've got to get you some bigger ticket speaking engagements and leave it to us to book out the biggest stadiums in each town and organise the ticketing for you. This obsession that you have with Jerusalem, we just cannot fathom. Our analysts say that you need to stay out of there altogether because sentiment towards you is not good in that area. You're a young man. You have decades of teaching and speaking ahead of you. And as for this role for the cross in your plan to restore life, well, frankly, it just seems counterproductive to us. Who in their right mind would look to you as a saviour when you can't even save yourself? This part of the plan just seems most, the most problematic part of the plan to us. And so you're going to have to give us some time to work on straightening that out for you. Well, fortunately, Jesus didn't have advisors. He had disciples. He was born in obscurity. He was raised by a carpenter. His political, his economic and his social influence was unexceptional. He spoke with outcasts, he touched the untouchable and he pumped a lot of time and energy into just 12 men. And in his early 30s, willingly, he made his way towards Jerusalem to his own crucifixion. His life, and especially his death, was not as any human being would have planned it. But it changed the world forever. And nearly 2,000 years on from it, we are all still talking about it. Such is the wisdom of the cross. And we have before us a bit of a problem when we approach the passage that was read to us today. And it's primarily a problem of familiarity because most of us are pretty comfortable with the cross. We see it on our churches. Many people wear it around their necks or hang it from their ears and earrings. We have it on our church logo. We're even going to eat buns with it on the top uh, after the service. Christians are often buried under a headstone marked with a cross. You'll see bumper stickers with crosses on them on people's cars. And we have come to revere the cross, not because the cross in itself is anything special or has any special powers, but because of the symbolism that the cross speaks to us of. It speaks to us of that very great sacrifice of our Lord for us. The image of the cross has become an image of our salvation. It's an object of faith and hope and love. And it is precious to believers. But our sheer familiarity with the cross blinds us to just how ridiculous a gospel about a crucified saviour would have seen in the first century to the people to whom Paul's representation of the crucifixion and of Christian worship gives us a little bit of an insight into just how absurd the people would have felt 
that the death of a saviour on a cross actually was. The earliest known pictorial representation of the crucifixion and Christian worship is not a precious piece of religious artwork. It is a piece of ancient graffiti that was scratched into the wall in part of a, a building complex um, on the Palatine Hill in Rome. The building from which it recovered was part of once part of the palace complex of Emperor Caligula before it was said to have become a boarding school for the messenger boys of the nobility of the time. And it's during this time as a boarding school that the theory goes that uh, this piece of graffiti originated. Essentially, this earliest known representation of the crucifixion is not only a piece of graffiti, it is also a form of ancient bullying. And it was directed at someone named Alexamenos. The theory is that Alexamenos was, was a student at the boarding school. He was one of the messenger boys. And he was being teased about his Christian faith and his worship practices by another student at the boarding school. The slab that contains uh, the graffiti can still be seen at the Palatine Hill Museum in Rome. And it depicts the figure of a man with the head of a donkey on a cross. And beneath it, there is some crude Greek lettering uh, scratched in there, which when translated reads, Alex Manos worships his God. And I think it gives us a very good idea of just how ridiculous the Romans felt the whole notion of worshipping a crucified saviour was. To them, the cross was an instrument of torture and humiliation. On the rare occasions when one of their, their Roman gods was said to have died, their death was always depicted in an heroic way. That a saviour would be killed was ridiculous to them. That a saviour would be killed at the hands of evil was even more ridiculous. But to worship a saviour who had been so utterly and completely humiliated, well, that was just absurd. And that's the attitude that's reflected in this ancient piece of graffiti. It's also the attitude that we hear voiced by the religious leaders as they stood around the cross mocking Jesus. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe him. The religious leaders of the day thought the whole notion of a saviour hanging on a cross was absurd. The Romans clearly thought that worshipping such a saviour was ridiculous, as did most of the citizens of Corinth. Corinth was one of the, the largest cities in ancient Greece. It was under Roman rule at the time this letter was written by Paul and it had quite a large population, a mixed population, consisting of Romans and Greeks and Jews. 
And these three culturally quite distinct groups had many differences, but the one thing that united them was their belief about how ridiculous it was to worship a crucified saviour. To the Romans, to be crucified was the greatest indignity in life. Romans had not invented crucifixion, but they had certainly made an art form of it. They would strip the intended victims and flog them and then make them parade through the streets carrying their cross before eventually being nailed to it, hoisted high up into the air to die an agonising death in full view of anyone who witnessed the spectacle. They did not treat their own citizens like this. Very few of their own citizens were ever put to death this way because to the Romans, the cross was an embarrassment. Death by crucifixion was something to be ashamed of. In fact, so shameful was the whole concept of crucifixion that the Roman orator Sicero said it was unbecoming of a Roman citizen to even utter the words cross. So they used euphemisms like the unlucky tree. If ever in polite company they had to talk about crucifixion. To the Romans, the Apostle Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now in the passage that was read to us today, Paul describes Christ crucified as a stumbling block to the Jews. Now, that's hardly surprising when the Romans used the cross to subdue the Jews. To them it was a symbol of their own oppression under Roman rule, but to really understand the depth of their feelings, we need to see crucifixion in the light of their own laws. And if we go back to Deuteronomy, we read this. Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23. This was one of, of many of their laws. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Now, it's pretty evident from that statement that this law is talking about someone who has been put to death and then the dead body is hung on a tree for display purposes. But it's not hard to understand how that could easily be translated to crucifixion. Drop the first part, hold on to the last part, which seems to be the most important, and you've got a pretty nice little saying there, he who is hanged is accursed of God. And that was not the kind of saviour that any Jew wanted. They wanted a powerful saviour, not a cursed saviour. They wanted a saviour who could free them from Roman oppression, not one 
who would succumb to the cross. To these, the Apostle Paul would respond that Christ brought an end not only to this curse, but to all other curses or reasons for the curse that could come upon God's people under the law by taking those curses upon himself. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It's Galatians 3.13. None could hope to fully live up to the standards of the law. So all were destined to be cursed. But Christ took that curse upon himself. So to the Romans, the cross was something shameful. To the Jews, it was a stumbling block. But to the Greeks, that third entity in Corinthian society, it was simply nonsense. Greek culture, as we all know, produced many renowned philosophers, some of whom today still remain household names. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Plutarch, and Pythagoras. The search for wisdom was very much ingrained in the mindset of the Greeks. It was part of their culture, and they considered themselves masters of it. Greek philosophic wisdom was based on intellectual reason, and the Greeks prided themselves, or the Greek philosophers prided themselves on being able to explain just about anything using reason. God taking on a human form and dying by crucifixion was beyond all intellectual reason. It made no sense. It was nonsense. And to these... The Apostle Paul would point to the foolishness of their own standards of wisdom and to Christ in whom lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.3. Human wisdom brings human results. How many of you can recount the teachings of Plato or Aristotle or Socrates or Plutarch or Pythagoras? Maybe you know Pythagoras's mathematical theorem because you had to learn it at school. But what about his philosophical ramblings? Have any of your lives been changed by the intellectual output of any of those great human thinkers? In Corinthian society, as in our own society today, there was no shortage of human wisdom. And yet verse 21 of that passage that Pastor Glenn read to us tells us that in spite of it all, they still did not know God. The Jews claimed to know God through the law and the prophets, the Greeks through reason and philosophy, and all of it amounted to naught, says verse 21. They still did not know God. In his great wisdom, God has chosen to make his, himself known to us, to all of humanity, and he's done it through the work of Jesus at the cross.
Only at the cross, in becoming the cursed of God, would the curse of God be lifted from us. Only at the cross, in weakness, could the power of evil be defeated. Only at the cross could what seemed like defeat secure the ultimate victory. And only at the cross could death bring life. It is completely counterintuitive. And that is precisely what Paul is trying to impress upon the Corinthian church. If we take the message of the cross and we apply it to human intellect and reasoning, the cross will cause us to stumble because the wisdom of the cross is in a realm beyond human wisdom and understanding. And if you read beyond today's passage into chapter 2, you will find that this kind of wisdom cannot be learned. It is only revealed by God through his Holy Spirit. And having wrestled with this passage, I get a bit of a feel for where Paul is at at the end of the passage in trying to explain something that is completely counterintuitive, completely countercultural, and can really only be understood with the help of the Spirit. So I appreciate his approach towards the end of that passage. And I like to think he probably had a bit of a smile on his face as he penned that part of the letter and thought about all those he loved in Corinth. If you'll allow me to indulge in a little bit of paraphrase, essentially what he's saying is look around you. Who in their right mind would have chosen you lot? You lack wisdom, even by human standards. You lack influence. You lack social standing. This ain't human wisdom operating here because if it was, most of you guys would not have been a first round draft pick. That is what he's saying to the church in Corinth and the same message applies to all of us here today. Who among us is wise? even by human standards. Who among us is of noble birth? None that I'm aware of. Who among us is influential? None. The only reason we have been chosen is because of the cross. So not one of us can boast except in the Lord. You are a first round draft pick and the offers have already gone out but the offers were not based on skillfulness because that would be human wisdom and reason nor does it have anything to do with your background or your heritage or the family into which you were born that also would be human wisdom at work your selection only makes sense when viewed through that topsy-turvy, back-to-front lens of the cross. Many of the world's religions teach that humans must earn their salvation through good works, through high moral standards, through performing rituals or transforming their minds in some way. And in many respects, that makes sense to us because it's intuitive. 
you work hard and you'll be rewarded. But the cross says no. The hard work has already been done. God, in his infinite wisdom, knew that in a world tainted by sin, humans could never reason or work for their own salvation. By their own efforts, they could never possibly be good enough. They would always struggle and ultimately they would always fail under the curse of sin. So God launched his own rescue mission to lift that curse. And it wasn't some plot devised at the last minute to fix things when things went wrong. It wasn't some ill-conceived scheme that ultimately resulted in the Messiah being killed at the hands of those he came to save. His plan is almost as old as time itself. It's hinted at right back in the third chapter of Genesis. And he has doggedly pursued it all the way through the scripture from front to the other end in spite of every effort that humans have made to waylay that plan. Christ and his work on the cross are not a shameful embarrassment. They are the centrepiece of a master plan, the fullness of the wisdom of God. No clever marketing strategy was required to promote this plan. Yet Christ became the most influential figure in all of human history. No management team was needed, just one man, a God-man, in complete obedience to the Father. Speech writers were not needed because Jesus was the word of God. Analysts were not required either for the God-man knew the hearts of humans. Strategy was not necessary, only to do the will of the Father, even to death on a cross. And even event planners were made obsolete by a few Roman soldiers and a jeering crowd. And through what appeared to be complete foolishness, God dealt with sin and he made it possible for weak and imperfect human beings to be in a right relationship with him, set apart as holy and redeemed, free of all of the consequences of sin. Nobodies became somebodies. Sinners became sons and daughters of God. That is the very great wisdom of the cross. So what is it that you see when you look at the cross? Is there some part of you that is still ashamed of it? Perhaps not for the reasons that the Romans were ashamed, but are you too scared to mention it in polite company? Are you scared of what others of your family and friends might think if they knew that you were one of those who worshipped the crucified Saviour? Do you stumble over it? Do you perhaps have a hard time accepting 
why it had to be like this? Or do you perhaps just think it's all unnecessary foolishness because you have your own life sorted out? Or do you see in it the wisdom and the power of God displayed? Our scripture reading for today began, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So let there be no mistake. If you think the message of the cross is foolishness, then you are perishing. And it need not be so, because the hard work has already been done at the cross. If you think that you might be perishing, then make today that day, that day of reconciliation between yourself and God, that day that you call upon the crucified and now risen Saviour who took the shame and took the curse that should have been yours, Make today that day that you call on him for the forgiveness of your own sins. And then in this instrument of death, you will find new life. And if you have already done that today, as most of you already have, then may the cross today remind you of the wisdom and the power of God already at work in you by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to stand aside now just for a couple of minutes to allow the cross to take centre stage. I want you to just focus your eyes on the cross. We're going to have a minute or two of silence and then I'll pray before the team bring us the last song. We thank you, Father, for your perfect wisdom that is revealed to us at the cross. By your spirit, Lord, reveal it to us little by little, bit by bit, as we seek to know you more. Amen.